brief fundraising announcement. As you may or may not know, edX Global is a completely nonprofit organization that is run by volunteers. 100% of our donations go to student-led projects around the world, and it would help us tremendously if you donated even as little as $5. If you are in the spirit of giving during this holiday season, please send us a donation through PayPal or Venmo to edxglobalinc at gmail.com, spelled E-D-A-C-T-S- G-L-O-B-A-L-I-N-C at gmail.com. You can be provided with a tax-exempt ID number after your donation by requesting through the same email address. Thank you in advance for your donation, and happy holidays. Hello, you are listening to the Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Stephen Hawk. Stephen is a police officer in Southern California for the city of Glendora, He's worked patrol for four years and is a force instructor for the department. In high school, he started an Ed Axe club, played sports, and the trumpet. He received a music scholarship to go to college, where he also worked as a police cadet. He is currently finishing his bachelor's degree from California Baptist University in business management and operations management. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for joining us today. And you were involved in Ed Axe as a high school student. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, of course. Uh, I want to thank you guys for having me on today. I look forward to uh, talking to you guys and getting your point of view on all the topics we have here today. But um, when I was in high school, um, a family friend of mine, which was Fred at the time, um, had been starting a uh, nonprofit organization, and I had heard about it. Um, And through that, um, we started doing some things uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Fred, but kind of before um, the group was, was was formed in high school. Um, so we were doing that. Um, we had gone to uh, Honduras or, or just after the group was formed, or at least the high school group. Um, but we were still doing things locally and helping out uh, with the neighborhood and whatnot. Correct. Um, but after that is when we, we, we finally made it official for the high school group and started getting some, some other students on board. Um, but it was just really just a good group of people. And I really liked uh, what everybody's intentions were and, and really just helping people around the community. So we made it official with the high school group and we're able to, uh, to uh, reach out to more people. Yes, it sounds like edX was a little bit of a compliment to what you're already doing, and it just kind of fit, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's awesome just to just to have somebody who cares for you, or to know that somebody cares for you, and and that was a feeling I wanted to to you know replicate and be able to offer to other people. Yeah, just just let just let the um, audience know where where Stephen was was going to school here in here in Chino Hills, um, it was, it was the first, it was the first club there. The, the, the first edX club was, um, Stephen was, was the one to, um, 
get it going. Him, him and my son, Alex, were, were kind of the two people that were trying to get everything going. Um, and then as what Stephen was, was talking about, we were, we were doing some local stuff, um, just trying to figure out what we were going to be doing. And then there was um, an opportunity um, I had. Um, I was traveling down to, to the island of Utila off the coast of Honduras just to do some diving. And then uh, there was one of the people there asked what I did and I, and I let them know. And so when they, they asked if, if I wanted to check out one of their, one of their local schools. And so I said, yeah, you know, naturally. Um, and so um, I, I asked what the, what, what the school wanted and they said a playground. And so I, so I came back with that information and, and approached Stephen and Alex and, and other people said, Hey, you know, here's this opportunity. What do you guys think? And they jumped on it. Um, and so, um, so Stephen, can you, can you talk about that? Can you, can you talk about what, what you were thinking about if you remember um, about, about initially having that thought about going over to, to to the island um and then talk about your your own experiences there yeah so it was a long time ago but i still definitely remember it definitely um you know like i said we had been hanging out before and and doing stuff locally before so initially i knew it was a good group of people and and it would be a good time spending time with them as well as working with them uh to help the school down there um so my initial thoughts were were excitement, and like I said, I had that motivation just to kind of be there for those other people, uh, you know, like people had there, been there for me. Um, so, that were, so those were some thoughts right off the beginning. Um, let's see, Alex and I and and the rest of us got started planning, and um, and fundraising and things like that. Um, and then once we actually got there. Um, you know, just to just to see and be immersed in in their culture and so on was 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 an entire experience of itself. I remember, I remember we got to the school and the playground was uh, had some problems in shipping, so we we, we, we right. made do with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, just setting up the playground and working with the kids and you know seeing seeing them come out to the playground for the first time and just absolutely sprint to the playground and yeah. you know. And, and I wish we could have got a bigger playground and a, you know, a more advanced one, but we did what we could at the time and, and they loved it regardless. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a super fun experience. So Stephen, I heard you say a couple of times now you, that, you know, you wanted to help others and you wanted to be there for other people. And I'm wondering if these are the things that have inspired you to become a police officer Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what, you know, brought you into that career field. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, so growing up, like I said before, like, I don't know, I thought it was always a, a really good feeling to know that somebody was there for you or or was there to help you or wanted the best for you. Um, and growing up, whether that be, you know, coaches or, or teachers or people like Fred and, you know, other mentors throughout my life, I really, I really like that feeling knowing somebody was there for you to help you and was on your team. Um, so that's something I wanted to give back. Uh, so that's, that was one of the biggest motivating factors for me to become a police officer, just because I felt like, felt like so many people had, had been there for me. And then I wanted to return that back to the community. 
Because uh, one of the things that 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 I remember of the um, which 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 worked out well, you were involved in music, uh, or you know, when in 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 high school, and very very talented. Um, and one of the things that that we that we did just let the audience know is that we just didn't build a build a playground, but you and one of my daughters were training kids there um, about about music. Um, you know, train them with the recorder uh, because because two two courses that they that this one school doesn't receive is training in music nor art, um, and so with your um, with your talent in 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 being a is is it a trumpeter? Uh, is that how you say it? Yes, that's, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> All right. So so you so so with that experience, you you were able to gain a music, music scholarship, um, you know, in order to go to college. So, so how did that, how did that change? How did you go from um, getting, getting a music, you know, a music scholarship in order to go to college and then, and then you becoming a, a police officer? Yeah. So it wasn't easily easy and it definitely took some um, quite a bit of thought um, however, when I was at, at um, California Baptist University on that scholarship, I, uh, you know, really had to make a choice at one point. Um, was I going to be a professional musician or was I going to move into law enforcement? And um, it was at that time that I had to make the decision um, that I was going to go into law enforcement just because each of the each of both of them were, were demanding quite a bit of time uh, during that period. So. I realized I really couldn't do both and it would be most efficient for me to just to choose one or the other. Um, and that's, that's unfortunately when I had to give up the, the career in music. So I wasn't happy about it, but it, realistically, I just couldn't do both. So, so are you, are you still playing? No, I had, I, I had talked about it with my parents the other day saying I should break it back out and, see what I got still, but unfortunately, <laughs> no, I haven't touched the trumpet in a while. Uh, well, you, you know, one of the things that's, that's really cool about something like the trumpet or, you know, as, you know, as opposed to let, like, let's say the tuba, you could, you know, you could take that anywhere and play it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not very big at all and it's durable, so it's not going to break. And it's, and it's kind of like the showcase instrument too, where it, it has that's the right. main melody that... I used to yep, play the trumpet yep. in high school too, but I was nowhere near getting a scholarship to go to college for it. <laughs> nice. But, yeah. Nice. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a police officer? Um, yes. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of, that's rather broad because it, it consists of a lot of experiences. Um, but I would sure. say, um, I guess the first experience would be going through the hiring process um, and then going into the police academy um from there is it about six months obviously in the police academy and then after that you go into um field training uh which usually lasts about another six months which is um where a more senior officer or even a training officer uh, is in the car with you kind of watching everything that you do giving you a daily evaluations uh, and everything considering your training and then after that um uh, you'll be sent on your on your own, however, closely supervised during uh, a probationary period of a year and a half from the day you graduated the academy. So, wow. 
if you're using the same timeline, it would be it would be a year after um, you're off of training. And then from there, it's just you're just learning every day, learning something new every day. Yeah. Do you do you have a partner at your um, department currently? It just you... depends. Yeah. Um, for the most part, we don't, but mm-hmm. sometimes we do. Uh, however, obviously, if we ever do anything, then we'll meet up with a partner before we yeah. go and and do whatever we have to do. Yeah. I read an article recently um, that stated that um, officers who don't have partners who respond to calls alone um, are more likely to be like rely on their communication skills and be more like thoughtful and deliberate in communicating because they don't have their partner to um, rely on. What do you, what do you make of that? Do you, do you think that that might be somewhat true? (laughs) Yeah, that sounds interesting. I would would love to read that. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess what, it said that if you don't have a partner, that you have better communication skills with with the community. I guess. Yeah, um, it was stating that like um, it was. I think it was research based, so it was saying that officers who respond to calls alone um, are less likely to get into like higher conflict, confrontational type stuff, and that they attributed it to relying more on their communication um, than you know. I guess maybe. I'm trying to think of the way that it was worded, but yeah, yeah, mostly, you know, relying on that, just like that dialogue of, you know, listening and, and understanding instead of, you know, coming in as an authoritative, you know, figure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. It would be hard for me to say just because I haven't done much of the, you know, the two man police work. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine maybe a factor that plays into it is, is the attitude of your partner or, sure. um, you know, your, your conflicts between you and your partner for being stuck in the car with them for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it'd be hard for me to say just because I haven't, I haven't worked, uh, you know, a two man car for a while. So to, to be able to compare is, is kind of difficult. Yeah, of course. And that, you know, a lot of that is just based on personalities too. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, 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 that we do here uh, as, as part of this as part of this podcast is we is we bring in multiple multiple voices um, and that's that's exactly what the what what our name is it um, um, Carrero is a is a is a Maori word meaning story or narrative and so we've had we've had people come in just to share their their experiences and and their thoughts um, people from the US and then and then around the world to talk about current current issues. Um, with all that is taking place in the in the nation, um, how how are things within your within your department, within your community, family, um, with with all the with all the current protests going on, though it though it seems like things things have calmed calmed down a little bit more. Um, um, so what, so what's, what are your thoughts, Stephen? Uh, yeah, so initially, obviously, um, you know, it definitely hurts when, uh, you see one of, uh, one of your coworkers or somebody within your line of work do something that's, um, that's, that's just not acceptable and, and to see it damage, damage the line of work and damage the trust between, you know, you and the community, 
especially when it's when it's rather you know attenuated from from the work that you do um you know, that takes a hit on us um and obviously there's there's just no room for some of the things that are going on right now in law enforcement and and it needs to be handled uh you know you know swiftly and um but within the police department um, i think the biggest thing that i'm realizing is that uh, you know every police department's different and um and within one police department can be completely different than another police department or you know sheriff's office and depends on the size and in the area and and the culture of that police department so just realizing that it goes to show that you know just because you know one police department may be you know 100% locked down or um, or, or do great police work uh, doesn't doesn't mean that another police department can't be different so it's been difficult seeing the lost trust and then obviously extremely frustrating seeing some of the other things that are going on but um, you know overall we'll make it through it um, it's time to change and make some some adaptations but but we'll make it through it. So within your experience in your department, have you seen any changes maybe in training or even in administration or overall policing um, after some of these things have taken place? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, obviously there's there's policy changes and law changes like the uh, carotid restraint and things like that, that that were immediately taken off. So in that matter, yes. Uh, can you explain that a little bit just yeah. for layman's <laughs> like myself? Yeah. So the carotid restraint is basically just the chokehold, uh -huh. um, which, um, you know, the concerns of applying that incorrectly were, were shown in the George Floyd incident. And mm. um, so that was reflected, um, you know, within the law, uh, rightfully so. Um, I don't know how far you want to go into depth with it, but uh, there's there's the the carotid restraint or the vascular neck restraint, which focuses on, uh, I guess, taking the blood off of, you know, away from somebody's head and that's when they pass out. Mm. And then you have more of a chokehold where uh, there, there, there's a smashing going on in, in the, in the cartilage of the trachea. So those are, those are kind of the two separate, um, I guess, you know, definitions of the two. Mm. Um, but regardless, um, either of them, applied incorrectly you know obviously is it can be a danger can be dangerous to somebody so um and so those were part of training though up until now you're saying that that was a trained way to restrain someone yeah the only the only one was the vascular neck restraint which is the one that uh, cuts off the blood flow to the brain mm -hmm. momentarily um to make somebody pass out um, however, it was never trained to, you know, crush the trachea or, or do anything right. else with the neck other than that, which is basically just the soft, fleshy part of your forearm and bicep on okay. each side of, of the neck. Hmm. Interesting. But like I said, the, the, work, the, the, the concern is when it's applied incorrectly, so you're not training it correctly is, is when it gets, yep. gets extremely dangerous. Sure, sure. Um, and so if, if, if something like that is, is being, I, like, I don't know if it's, if it's taken out, have they, have the police brought in any types of, uh, like something else to, to, to replace it? 
Um, no, not that in specific. Um, at that point, it would just come down to, you know, positional control. And, um, you know, there's still ways to control somebody from their back or, or, or while you're on top of them. Um, but other than that, there really is no need to, to do anything to the neck. It's just not effective and it doesn't really have a purpose. So, um, you know, it's a tool that it's another tool that you have or, or at least that we had. Um, but it wasn't one that you, you necessarily needed, if that, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, so then what, what, if anything, are areas of, of concern that, that you have um, regarding law, law enforcement? Um, and then what do you think are, are, are our biggest issues now? I think uh, one of our biggest issues now is definitely, um, you know, building trust between the community and, and doing our best to avoid any, any misunderstandings. Um, obviously, there are things that have destroyed the, the trust between, you know, the community and, and law enforcement, rightfully so. And, and I think at least on our end, we need to work on rebuilding that trust and, and showing that, showing that, uh, you know, we don't take a stand and there's no room for, for things like racism and, and excessive uses of force within law enforcement. So I think that's probably our biggest, our biggest problem right now. Um, yeah. Then, so I, I heard you, you know, say that there's no, no room for racism. Um, and, and I think that that's probably something people agree with across the board, even, you know, current police officers. But do you think that there might be just maybe some issues of um, like maybe unconscious biases that might exist within individuals where, you know, they might not be blatantly biased or racist towards, you know, a certain community of people, but they might just have these unconscious bias that might make them act or respond in different ways. And, and if so, do you think that that might be an area of need for training or addressing, or is it being trained or addressed? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, obviously you go through a, you know, an extensive background process. And I think that's the, um, that's the first step to, to avoiding any of these, these issues of people who just have inherent biases. Um, so throughout the background process with obviously what you've posted, what you've said and what other people mm. have to say about you that I think okay. that's just, the first step at getting rid of, you know, 99 or 95% of, of people who, who are just unfortunately going to think this way. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, you have your psychological exam and stuff like that, which should be able to, uh, you know, bring these problems to the surface. Can you recall questions on your psychological exam that might bring out some of these issues? Uh, you know what? There was a lot of questions on the on the test. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure some of them were directly related. I want to say there was maybe like 1,500 questions on the Jeez. test, and all of wow. them all of them were basically. I mean, they could range anywhere between like, do you like do you like flowers? Do you want to be an artist? And then you know, if you were an artist, would you draw flowers? So, oh my god, uh, it's kind of one of those things where the psychologist does their thing, and that's their expertise, and that's yeah. what they study. So. Okay. Um, you know, they figure out, I definitely remember there being like, you know, direct, direct um, questions towards, you know, biases and stuff about people of other races. But I would imagine that there was 
a lot more going on yep. you know, that the, psycho- the psychologist could see. And then obviously you have an interview with them. So sure. they're questioning you more. So, so Stephen, do you like flowers? <laughs> <laughs> I do like flowers. And do you want to be an artist? <laughs> <laughs> just answer, I just answered as true as I could. So, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. You, you know, and, and there's, there's been a lot of, a lot of talk about training. Um, because one, um, I don't know if you've, if you listen to, to any of our podcasts, but we had these two, two high school seniors, um, from Finland, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they were, they wanted to come on me because they were, they were puzzled as, as to why, um, there was, there was a lot of negative talk about police officers be, because I guess they're in, they're in, in Finland. They love their police officers. Um, in fact, they said that they just want to hug them when they see them yeah. doing their police work. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we were, we were puzzled. And so we're like, yeah, come on in. We could, we yeah. could talk about this. And, and, and so we were, we were talking about it and it came down to training that they were, they were saying that, that they recognize that there's that they go through about two years of training um, right before they actually get out into the you know into the into the public, um, and they're and they're always you know they're always walking walking I guess walking the beat, um, mm-hmm. and so they're visible, um, and so with regards to training. Um, and, and there's and there's also talk about raising the raising the age to for for people in order to be a police officer. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah. So, firstly, obviously, the more training training, the better. Um, I think when it comes down to training, it's just you know just comes down to an administrative issue and and costs and things like that. So, you know, the more training, the better. And if that's something. If that's something that, you know, everyone wants to push for, then then I'm all for it. I guess, you know, ultimately the responsibility lies on us to to make sure everyone's properly trained, but also on the same on that same note, you know, if we don't have those resources, you know, to train, then you know, it's hard to match what you know people want without the proper resources. So um, you know, it's kind of twofold. How are we spending our money on training and you know, or not spending our money on training and other things? as well as are we getting enough money for training? So it's, it's kind of a balance there. Um, and then what was the second part of the question? Um, oh, age. Um, you know, they, you know, there's, there's people talking about raising the, raising the age limit right before people could actually go into the police academy. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you would, you would know this question better than I do, but my initial thought is, um, yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess people who are under 25 is the number I've heard float around or, or yes, inherently, I guess, less immature or, or, or less able to make a, a critical decision. Um, however, I also believe that, you know, people, uh, you know, regardless of their age may have different maturity levels. Um, and, and I would, and I wouldn't really want to put a hard press number on, on something like maturity. Um, you know, I definitely do agree with, uh, making sure that maturity level is high enough, which, um, I think, you know, goes back to the background process and, and yeah. the psychological exam. But, um, 
you being around and teaching, uh, I guess people near that age, what, I mean, you, I think you'd know more than I do on, on, I guess that concept of maturity is, is, is my understanding is the goal of, of raising the age. Yeah. I think you're right about that because I think that maturity has to do with life experience. And although, you know, developmentally, your your frontal lobe isn't fully developed until your you know mid twenties, um, yeah. so that might be what they're thinking of developmentally. But yeah. ultimately, maturity is based on experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and and the and and what the frontal lobe does is really help us out with reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's one of the one of the things that that people people may be thinking about is that how how in tune are, are people with regards to reasoning? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because as, as, as you know, better than, better than we do when you're, when you're, when you're out there, you know, you, you probably have to use a lot of, a lot of reasoning. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, and so, so talking about, all you know, all this stuff, Stephen. Are there particular things that you would like to see changed? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I would like to see definitely more training. Um, you know, okay. the more training we have, the less, the less, the more we're able to perform, and the less there is that gap where uh, you know you're just disappointed. You know, society's disappointed with the way an officer acted. Um, you know, obviously getting rid of, uh, of the officers or preventing the officers from doing any harm or, you know, um, unjust injustices, um, you know, is the goal, um, doing that effectively. I'm all on board for, for anything that that'll do that. Um, you know, I, it's just a difficult problem to approach, um, you know, to be perfect, but, um, you know, anything that, anything that we can do to avoid those, those officers from being able to, you know, wear a uniform and go out and, and do bad things is, is the biggest thing, um, at least for me, but more training and, and more training is huge for me. I mean, the, the more training we have, the more professional we are and the better we perform. Yeah. Um, and something that you said earlier, you know, was what's funding and, and time and, and stuff for that training. And when I hear things like defund the police, I prickle because that's not a solution because obviously we need the police, right? And we need, and if we're talking about training, we understand that training comes time and money. And so defunding is not going to make things better. Um, So yeah, I think that might be something that um, I'm hoping we'll see with our new administration is, you know, I guess, you know, presidential administration is, work towards funding for training in these areas rather than, um, you know, I guess being reactive to it. Exactly. And, and like I said before, it's a twofold issue. You know, we can, we can throw all the money, you know, that we want at something, but that doesn't mean that it's going to equate to, Mm -hmm. you know, something of value. So not only does it depend on, you know, us getting the right funds, but it also depends on, uh, you know, Know, those funds go into efficient use um, and not just going and sitting in a classroom and, and right. going over a PowerPoint or something similar <laughs> to that. Yeah. Um, so it, it, and also it depends on us making sure that we allocate our money. So it, it is twofold. Like I yeah. said before, it, 
we also have a responsibility for quality training as well as, as getting those, those funds for that quality training. For sure. You know, um, I just want to quickly switch, switch gears a little bit right before we end, but you, but you mentioned, um, classes and classroom and education. Um, so my geeky side's coming out, you know, since you're not all that far from, from your high school years, um, at least in my eyes, <laughs> because, mm. because maybe I, maybe I still think of you as kind of a high school student. Um, um, with, with all that's going on and, and thinking about your, your experiences, um, what, what are some of the things that, that you would, that you would wish, wish teachers to know? That's, that's the first question. And the second question is how would, how would you wish, wish to, wish to change education? Mm. See, right off the bat, um, I know, at least uh, for teachers, something I would like them to know is that uh, I guess everyone just learns differently. Uh, you know, especially especially myself going through high school, there were some concepts that now that that I'm older, I realized I struggled with quite a bit. However, it was just a matter of, of how they were being explained or, or how it was being taught to me. Um, you know, once it was showed to me a different way, um, it came to me pretty easily, especially, you know, like through college and stuff like that. Um, I think one of, uh, I think a, a cool idea I heard uh, for for changing like high school education was adding some kind of like social social services class to high school. Like, I, I forget the actual word that they used, um, but it was just speaking to you know general life skills and then maybe some some intro to you know basic law and stuff like that, just so that everyone has a good understanding of of what their rights are. And I think yeah. that would make a lot of, a lot of people more comfortable, um, you know, with what they can and can't do with the police. And, and then, and then you, you lose that, that gap of misunderstanding. Um, and that makes everyone just a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. I um, like that. That's smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we, that we ask all of our guests uh, when we, when we come to the end is what their call to action is. Um, and so, and so, and what is the one takeaway you would wish for people to learn from you? Well, that's a hard question. Um, let's see. I would feel like my call to action right now, at least in, in law enforcement is, um, I've been very passionate about jujitsu and how it, um, kind of equates to the bigger picture here with excessive uses of force and stuff like that. Um, so I would say that my call to action within law enforcement is, is jujitsu um, and, and training jujitsu and teaching other people jujitsu uh, within law enforcement. Um, and then on the bigger picture of things, I would say that uh, my bigger call to action would be to just have people um, look past differences between each other and, and, and do their best to understand everybody else's perspectives. Yeah. That's great. I like that. That's a great like thing is because we're so often focused on how we're different when we should just be focusing on the positive and how we're the same. And we have something that we can connect with each person on. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's, that's good. 
Um, and then finally, are there any social media platforms that you would like to share with our listeners if they wanted to follow you? Uh, no, I don't have any. Okay, fair enough. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today, and thanks for sharing your experiences and your perspective, and thanks for your work keeping our community safe, and we just really appreciate you, so thank you. No, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.